0: Seven six seven six five four three two one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother!
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundits Society. Joining me this week is Leo Panitch. Leo is the editor of the Socialist Register and the author of many books, and he's here to talk to me about the pitfalls of social democracy. Stay tuned. You're definitely not going to want to miss this, folks. Welcome, everybody, to this second installment of my Labor in the Capitalist State series that I'm running here for fall 2017. Joining me is Leo Panich. There is no better guest to talk about state theory than Leo Panich. Not only has he been the editor of the Socialist Register for 35 years, he's the author of many books, most recently including The Making of Global Capitalism that he co-authored with his friend Sam Gendon. Uh, But he studied under Ralph Miliband. He did his graduate work under Ralph Miliband. Uh, Miliband is somebody that I talked about last week with Raphael Cacheturian. We did our episode on Marxian and Neo-Marxian state theory, the two-part banger that we did last week. If you haven't heard that, folks, you got to go check it out. It's really good. And it really lays a lot of groundwork for what Leo and I talk about for this week. So Leo studied under Ralph Miliband and his work is deeply informed by Marxian and neo-Marxian state theory. So his, his work and his analysis on U.S. imperialism, social democratic politics, and the pitfalls of left social democracy, right? The pitfalls of governing a capitalist state from the radical left. All of that comes from his understanding of political economy and state theory and... Leo has been instrumental in a lot of socialist movements. He's the kind of guy who's just as comfortable, comfortable inside of a seminar room, you know, in a, some dusty graduate seminar as he is talking to a hall full of workers who are on strike and looking for a strategic lead. And so this man has traveled the world. He has spoken to workers in struggle for the last several decades and he's really contributed uh, to the intellectual enterprise of socialism as well. And so I brought him on the show because I have been—I have been just absolutely—I've <laughs> been a fanboy of left social democracy. And he emailed me and he said, "Adam, we got to talk about your your—we uh, got to talk about your recent <laughs> obsession with left social democracy. There are a lot of pitfalls and problems and contradictions there." And I said, you know what, Leo, you're right. You're absolutely right. I agree with you. So come on my show and tell me why I should be cautious about <laughs> this groundswell of left social democracy, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn or otherwise. And so we had a great conversation about that very topic. He is a big supporter of Corbyn and he, because he thinks, actually, that the latest Labor Party manifesto goes beyond capitalism has the capability to go beyond it. Uh, so we want to we fight for social democracy to go beyond capitalism, not stop at the sort of statist project that social democracy always was historically, because that has fallen under the weight of its own contradictions. So we're going to talk a lot more about that in the interview to come. There will be a B-side to this interview. I talked to Leo about his time on the socialist left and what it means today to be a socialist intellectual. There's no better person to talk to than him in many ways. Like I said, he's just as comfortable talking about state theory as he is addressing a hall full of workers who are on strike. So we talked about his time on the left, his relationship with the late Ralph Miliband, and what it means to think about the present conjuncture and to articulate... The left agenda and the way forward amidst in the midst of you know a lot of competing and uh, you know tendencies and theoretical and political projects and so you're not going to want to miss that. But the only way you're going to hear that is if you are a member of the Dead Pundit Society, folks. So if you're not, head on over to Patreon.com/slash Dead Pundits and subscribe at five dollars or eight dollars a month, and you will hear that along with all of my other B-sides, hot takes and field notes, and subscriber-only content. I'm adding to that almost every week. So you're going to get your money's worth, and you're going to support the New Left Agenda. So head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. So while we are critical of social democracy, we nonetheless vehemently support Jeremy Corbyn and their efforts to bring socialism to the United Kingdom and beyond. And so here is a two-minute clip that I'm going to bring you. Of John McDonnell, who's the number two man, uh, the right-hand man of Jeremy Corbyn, you might say, and he's articulating the project of rebuilding the vision of left social democracy in the UK and then going beyond it. And then after that, I'll bring you my interview with Leo. So here we are, John McDonnell at last month's Labour Party conference. Enjoy.
0: So yes, we've proved now that we're an effective campaigning party. We now have to prove that we'll be an effective governing party. A government that can set the political agenda for a generation. That's our objective. And you know, if you study history, the history of our party, you'll see it's always been the role of Labour governments to lead our country into each new era. It was the Labour, the Attlee Labour government, that built a new society from the debris of the bomb sites in the new era after the Second World War. Those men and women who had endured so much through the depression of the 1930s and who had sacrificed so much to defeat fascism placed their trust in us, in our party. My dad was a sergeant in the army and my mum was a welder by day in a munitions factory and an ARP warden at night. God knows how she did it. But they came out of the war with that spirit of 1945 inspired in them by the election of a Labour government. And the Labour Party fulfilled its promise. They fulfilled its promise to them and all families by creating the welfare state, providing free education for their children, building a decent home, investing in the economy based upon full employment, and, yes, creating that jewel in our crown, the NHS, the most civilising act of any government ever. And in... And in the 1960s, when the Tories governed this country from their gentlemen's clubs on behalf of the privileged few and held this country back from facing the challenges of the modern era, it was the Wilson Labour government that recognised the potential of a modern Britain forged, as Harold Wilson said, in the white heat of the scientific revolution. For my brother and me, and so many others of our generation, new educational opportunities enabled us to challenge the barriers that held back so many working-class kids. It was down to a Labour government. And yes...
1: Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today is Leo Panich. He's a professor emeritus at York University and a Canada Research Chair. He's written many books, including The End of Parliamentary Socialism with Colin Lees and The Making of Global Capitalism with Sam Gendon. He's been uh, the editor of the Socialist Register for over 30 years, which makes him particularly well-suited to address the shifts in the political winds that we're currently witnessing. Leo, thanks for joining us today. Very happy to be here, Adam. So am I the first person to
2: introduce you as a Professor Emeritus? Uh,
1: You're recently recently (laughs) retired from York.
2: Not that recent. that has been a a year already, so I'm afraid you're not. (laughs) Not not quite. Yeah, it's... uh, Full
1: transparency, I was one of Leo's uh, final um, MA students. Uh, That's right, and a very good one as well. Well, I I was honored to be one of your final MA students, I should add. Uh, It was was a great experience. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to talk to you about this political moment. So you reached out to me because I've been proclaiming on the show that we need to build (laughs) a left social democratic future. And you and a couple of others, a couple of others, your students, I should add, (laughs) actually reached out and said, No, 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 Adam, that's not quite right. We need to do better than left social democracy. And so, in this episode, I really want to get at a better articulation of my thesis, of what I'm trying to argue for here. And it's going beyond uh, social democracy, if you will. Uh, So, tell us a little bit about the particular political moment in which we find ourselves with uh, Corbyn and Sanders and beyond. Well, I, you know, I
2: think that uh, you can call both of them left social democrats, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I only objected to you calling me one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, the reason I'm not uh, is precisely because I've always argued from uh, my work going back to the late 1970s on the attempt to change the British Labour Party at the time of the campaign for Labour Party democracy and the Benite movement inside it, the Greater London Council at the municipal level, uh, that uh, such an attempt, while admirable, to turn a party like the Labour Party into a socialist party, uh, would inevitably split the party. Uh, That the centre-right of such parties Uh, who very, very strongly understand what they are ideologically and politically, and they are not socialists. They have come to terms with capitalism, although they'd like to make it a little more humane or regulated. They will, uh, up to the day before an election, be prepared to split the party rather than let a socialist government come into place under their rubric. Uh, and it's that that has always made me feel that the project of changing the Labour Party without or any social democratic party, without taking this into account, is is inevitably flawed. That's I think the the thing we need to look for in what will happen with Corbyn and and certainly what would have happened uh, with Sanders had he won the nomination.
1: That's some really great historical insight. I think nowadays, folks, uh, myself included, are really just sort of grasping at straws and looking for uh, any hopeful opening, uh, regardless of the uh, inevitable contradictions that you rightly point to. Uh, but but perhaps these contradictions are something that the left needs to return to, given uh, this recent political upsurge in social democratic uh, you know politics. Uh, you and uh, Greg Albo and your Preface to this year's socialist register really spell out this this task really well. I want to this is a somewhat long quote but I want to want to get this all out there. The two of you write the political event of gaining state power whether by taking parliament or in a collapse of the existing political regime has proven time and again to be less crucial than the social revolution of building capacities for self-government and the democratisation and socialization of institutional resources. The event in itself will never be a sufficient condition for the exploited and oppressed to build their own capacities for establishing collective rather than competitive ways of living through developing socialist democracy. So you draw a distinction there between the actual event of taking state power and the necessity to build the capacities inside and outside the the party in broader society in order to see this revolution through. How do you see that playing out, uh, some of those weaknesses and deficiencies playing out in uh, the UK Labour Party right now?
2: Well, uh, I think that, you know, Corbyn was very much a product of that earlier attempt I was speaking to uh, that Tony Benn was the spearhead of. And he always saw himself primarily as an educator. Uh, as he put it, when he won his first nomination, Uh, to be a Labour MP back in 1951, his self-definition of his task was that of making socialists. And he meant by that not simply converting people to the ideology of socialism, but of developing people's capacities to engage uh, as socialists in political strategy to engage as socialists uh, in the democratization of the institutions they were in and the communities they were in. That's a big task. And, and although the communist and social democratic parties historically, uh, when they emerged as great mass parties between 1880 and 1920, the first permanent organizations of the subordinate classes They were oriented to forming the proletariat, if you like, working class people into a self-acting class, a a set of communities that could act in their own interests, could identify, define their own interests, uh, could develop the skills politically, not simply to be represented, uh, but to hold the representatives accountable Uh, and indeed to become political actors in whatever sphere themselves. They were oriented that way, but the constraints of parliamentary democracy on the one hand, which is a very elitist notion of representation, you put someone in there and he introduces policies, Uh, uh, or the communist parties, the vanguard parties, Uh, which uh, were very much oriented to making a revolution, uh, but not necessarily to developing mass capacities to run the society they wanted to introduce. Both of those failed to play that historic role um, through the 20th century of developing the capacities of those they claimed to represent. Now, there have always been uh, the kinds of socialists I'm talking about inside both parties. Uh, and what we're seeing, especially with Corbyn, um, who, as I say, was, uh, in, in a sense, the mentored by Tony Benn, uh, does see himself in that light. And, and a lot of the people who formed Momentum, which is the organization uh, that ran in front of him in a way. Uh, to get him elected as leader, and then to keep him in the leadership against the attempt by the majority of the parliamentarians to get rid of him. Uh, Those people as well are very oriented to this, Um, not simply to making uh, uh, MPs accountable, although that too, uh, but also to developing constituency labor parties into the centers of life in their communities, uh, where people can learn to act politically uh, in their workplaces, uh, in whatever arenas of life they're engaged in. So it sounds to me that, uh, that Greece, what happened with Greece
1: in Syriza some two or three years ago now almost, uh, is really a cautionary tale in many ways. Yep. And and you're very active in that situation in Greece, uh, both on the national, the domestic and the international solidarity level. Uh, before long before series was was placed in power and uh, you have an interesting and and somewhat uh, unique even idiosyncratic analysis i think on the left about exactly what went wrong and and what we should make of that failure of series so maybe maybe tell us about your involvement in that and take us back you know to 2011 2012
2: well i've i've, I've known the people who many of the people who created series for a long time and was impressed with a minority, but nevertheless a very impressive minority, in the leadership, uh, which saw politics in the terms I've just been describing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, yes, they wanted radical policies, but they understood that the ability to carry those radical policies through would depend on the development of alternate means of production, distribution, consumption uh, in Greece— Uh, once they were forced to, uh, uh, should they have been forced to, leave the European Union. It's not something they wanted to do um, at all, and they wouldn't have gotten elected if they had said they were going to leave the European Union. Um, That said, it was always clear to me that the radical things that they wanted to do uh, were not compatible with staying inside the European Union. Uh, just getting the monkey of austerity off their backs was not going to be compatible with what the Germans would allow them to do. And the labor movements in the north of Europe, above all in Germany, uh, were not strong enough or even oriented enough uh, to shifting the balance of forces, say, inside Germany, uh, to have given the Syriza government space to do uh, even that minimal thing of getting austerity off their backs, reneging on some of the debt, et cetera. Well, you know, the line that came, the easy line for most of the international left was simply that uh, they capitulated. Right, right. Um, you know, and and that's just so simplistic and easy. They mean they capitulated in the sense that they didn't uh, pull out of the euro. They never have the honesty to say that to have pulled out of the euro would have then uh, required the introduction of import controls and capital controls. Uh, and you can't have import controls and capital controls inside the European Union. Right, right, In order to make that kind of strategy viable, you would have had to develop the confidence, the interest of the mass of Greek voters uh, in the kinds of alternative means of living Uh, that would have, you know, allowed them to exist outside of the European Union in any viable way to rebuild a furniture industry in Greece, uh, to develop alternative forms of production and consumption across a whole range of arenas. Of course, even then it would have been extremely iffy. Um, not least because, as nobody talks about, Greece is a member of NATO because this is a country that's already had a military coup, uh, etc., etc. So my great fear long before they were elected was that they weren't putting enough emphasis on developing the cadre uh, uh, to be able to uh, developed those capacities in the population through the solidarity networks, etc. Uh, they were mostly concerned with would we have enough capable and honest people to go into the state. And it is a very corrupt and clientelist estate. That should be a great concern. But that was their only concern. And they did, in fact, take The best people dumped them into the labyrinth of the state and left nobody in the party to be mobilizing and educating and developing people once they got into government. Now, I must say, the activists in the solidarity networks also had a very limited view uh, of government. Many of them are anarchists, and they would say things like, why do you call it a Syriza government? It's a government. It doesn't matter what kind of a government it is. It's a government. Right. So the governments can only ever be repressive. Yeah, and and uncreative, etc. So they weren't mm-hmm. coming forward with any proposals for what the government could do in order to give them resources to do this kind of stuff either. You know, this is this is essentially my position on Greece, and uh, it's a it's a very sad outcome. Uh, And I do feel that uh, what we've seen with it, uh, and in some senses I predicted it, it has been the social democratization of the Syriza government uh, in that limited negative sense that I was speaking of, as oriented to policy uh, almost entirely, as getting caught in the labyrinth of the state. I think that's what's happened to it, and I think the danger would have been with Sanders, and the danger... Uh, could still be with Corbin uh, that that could happen uh, you know so that's the danger with left social democracy if you like. Um, and and the forces are such that I think in the short run uh, almost anywhere that you'd have a left social de- democratic leadership come to office uh, that the more the greater likelihood would be, uh, the full social democratization, rather than the development of a socialist strategy. I know that sounds depressing, but I think that's—I <laughs> I, I think at the moment that's the likely outcome.
1: I think that's right. I mean, we're, 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 your perspective is so valuable not only because you, you bring such a, a broad, uh, international and, and, and historical sweep to your analysis, but also because. That that sort of affords you a different kind of focus. Whereas I, I if if I bend the stick in the classic Leninist way, right? You bend the stick in one, one, one direction or the other direction, depending on the the context, right? Depending on what's necessary in that particular moment. If I bend the stick, it's it's quite often in, in being a little bit blind to the impasses of social democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and when challenged, I'm, I'm more, than, uh, more than willing to admit that, yeah, okay, these are, these are limitations. There are a number of contradictions inherent to social democracy as, you just, as you've just sort of listed. But at the same time, I find this sort of knee-jerk anti-social democracy uh, kind of ethos on the left right now to be really frightening because they're not coming at it from a really principled direction like you are kind of eyes forward, always looking out for the contradictions just over the horizon, right? They're looking at it in, in one of two ways, either anti-statist in the anarchist way that you just mentioned with the Solidarity Networks in Greece, or they're looking at it in this kind of um, insurrectionist, uh, almost messianic Leninist uh, model of uh, a rupture
2: with the state. Yeah I, yeah, I think there's something in between that is you know, perhaps less thought through. And uh, it's an expectation that were there to be one government uh, which would break with the institutions of global capitalism, uh, th- no matter where it is, no matter how small, Portugal, Greece, what have you, uh, that it would trigger an uh, explosion of similar developments elsewhere by virtue of its example. Um, and and uh, I, I think this is uh, unfortunately short-sighted and naive. Hmm. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I think that uh, it has been long held in the Trotskyist tradition uh, that this would happen, that their internationalism, their internationalist orientation is built up around a knowledge of and an enthusiasm about uh, what's taking place in different parts of the world, and a hope, um, even an expectation, that a revolutionary break in one small place would have a cascading effect. Right, right.
1: right. Um, this is uh, une- uneven combined development to the Trotsky. We talked a little bit about this with Raphael Kachaturian. Last yeah, week. to
2: some extent. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, it, you know, Trotsky at one point, I shouldn't put too much emphasis on this, back in the 30s, uh, said that, you know, capitalism had long passed its due date. Uh, it should have been done away with long before. And in that circumstance, one could expect that a break in any one place, you know, this is the kind of, uh, uh, a break in any one place could lead to uh, a break around the world. And it's kind of, Picking up the the theme of the Soviet Revolution now exactly hundred years old, that yes. it, it was the it was the weakest link in the chain, with an expectation that a break would then happen in the more advanced capitalist uh, other European countries, above all Germany. That didn't happen, of course. Um, so uh, I think that's a very common and not well thought through uh, expectation. If You know, the constraints of global capitalism on any given government uh, is, in fact, enormous. Less so, obviously, uh, should it happen in the United States. Uh, We Canadians are very aware that we can only go so far, uh, let alone even in a socialist direction, even in a Keynesian direction, unless the Americans (laughs) (laughs) go so far. Uh, given, you know, given what a colony we are of the American empire. Um, But, but, you know, anywhere, this is a problem. But in order to be able to expect that a break anywhere would have international reverberations, you have to do the long, difficult, hard, preparatory work of, you know, being able to have working classes, socialist parties, trade unions, shift the balance of forces inside those other countries before you make this break. You know, as I was saying, you know, the German working class was, if anything, racist about Southern Europeans, you know, who worked longer hours than the Germans, but, you know, had this attitude that they're all lazy and unproductive. Um, and, and, you know, you weren't going to get a shift in the balance of forces that would have given space to Syriza without a very different type of trade union movement and set of socialist and social democratic parties in Germany. Uh, the left party in Germany it doesn't have the capacity to shift that. Uh, it's not even much oriented to it. It's too policy oriented itself. Hmm. Uh, too little oriented to remaking the German working class. Um, so we need to be looking for how to get past these constraints of international capitalism, certainly, but we can't expect that to happen with uh, the wave of a hand in one place. Right. So you've given
1: us so much there. I mean, that's the, uh, let me try to dis- pick out and distill some of the particular aspects there, because I follow your work quite closely uh, folks here on the show will know, and let me just give you a little bit of credit here, credit where credit's due. Uh, the, the big part of the, the new left agenda that I'm trying to sort of build here is, uh, comes, uh, you know, from, 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 a lot of your work. And so folks here, if you're, if you're hearing resonances, that would be why. So I really want to pick up on these, a, a few things about Greece. You mentioned the importance of reviving the, uh, say the furniture industry in Greece, for example, um, is, are we really at the limits here, particularly with the EU and the UK? Are we at the limits with the integration of global capitalism and supply chains and international divisions of labor and manufacturing? Uh, for example, you know uh, the, the monoculture that you see in a lot of countries uh, is just not conducive to a national social democratic project, wherein you are blocked out of global markets. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't, they, they how much olives, uh, how olives and olive oil can they subsist on, right. uh, before the people start demanding meat other than, you know, sheep and goats perhaps, <laughs> right. uh, or, 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 whatever. I mean, I don't have enough awareness of the, of the Greek, uh, you know, uh, produce economy to know, but, but it seems to me that the diversification of manufacturing and production and agriculture in Europe and abroad has really made this uh, socialism in one country (laughs) project perhaps even more futile than it even was in this in the soviet era
2: yeah and certainly for a country like greece that has you know uh, so few energy resources you can't run an economy on olive oil so you know uh, at least russia had that not not to mention you know a massive range of other minerals so, yes, I, it, it, this is very true, and it does show you the limitations of any project of socialism-owned country, but especially one like this. That said, that said, there are a great many countries in the world which have much greater capacity to be more inwardly oriented in their production. You know, Yao Pedro Stedele, the head of the Landless People's Movement in Brazil, often says uh, that the tragedy uh, of the monoculture you referred to, of turning uh, Brazilian agriculture export-oriented in the production of soy, let us say, um, uh, means that the ability to feed uh, its massive hundreds of million population gets undermined. Um, uh, and it means that, uh, even if the PT government had managed to shift the international balance of trade more in Brazil's direction than they did, uh, it, around agriculture, and they did have some breakthroughs, um, in international agreements, you know, uh, by shifting towards monocultures and export oriented agriculture, they were tying themselves ever more deeply to an American-led global capitalism, or to a Chinese-led global capitalism, for those people who think that the Chinese are going to do that. I don't. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you see the point. So one of the things that we need to be doing, uh, if we at all are serious about the prospects for socialism in the 21st century, is not imagining that we're going to withdraw to autarky, that we're going to withdraw away from internationalism by any means completely. But we do need to look at uh, what strategies can be developed, what means can be developed for more inward-oriented economic production um, uh, without breaking entirely. Uh, Now, that's needed for ecological reasons as well. There's nothing more ludicrous than seeing um, seltzer water, mineral water, being shipped from Sicily to Norway in massive trucks, and right. and, and mineral water from Norway being shipped to Italy in massive trucks, passing right. each other on the freeways of Europe. Uh, but, you know, that that's the situation we're in. And given the economic as well as ecological contradictions, we... Making the kind of socialist change we're talking about, it does, it is going to have to involve reconceiving what standards of living mean in the 21st century for both economic and ecological reasons. And part of the work we need to do, and I think it is doable, uh, is to develop the capacities of parties, unions, community organizations, social movements to have that discussion around uh, what those collective goods could be that would begin to shift uh, production and consumption and distribution away from the very heavy concentration on uh, individual consumer goods. Um, uh, you know, this is an indication of how long and difficult a struggle we're engaged in, but given the irrationality and chaos of contemporary global capitalism, We're going to see loads of attempts uh, to get out of
1: it. Right, right. Well said. So it seems to me that I want to jump ahead to something I was going to get to here in a little bit later. But it seems to me that the way that folks are trying to accomplish this, in particular with the attunement to the ecological crisis that you spoke of, is they're returning to uh, an extreme form of localism. Uh, But the kind of politics that you've outlined there would certainly be, in in many respects, national politics national yes. projects but there isn't right now there exists very little integration particularly at least in north america
2: yes i, should say. I, I think this is absolutely right adam right. uh uh the alternatives appear to be globalism or extreme right, localism right. there's no middle ground there, it seems. Uh, and there's there's no there's no democratic economic planning capacity uh at the local level i mean apart from it being extremely selfish Uh, You can imagine a socialist society in, what, Mill Valley in California uh, or, or, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in the Canadian, uh, uh, British Columbia interior uh, around Kelowna. Uh, But, you know, that involves not giving a damn what happens down the road, Um, you know, uh, on the other side of the state border, let alone uh, the national border. Uh, But beyond that, you know, any effective alternative way of living that I've been speaking to does at least have to take place uh, at a national level. And, you know, it's obvious uh, that while people do identify and live, of course, locally, insofar as they have any collective sense of themselves, it is at the level of the nation state. Uh, now, there can be, of course, struggles over what the boundaries of that state should be, as we see with Catalonia and Scotland and so on. Uh, but but uh, you can't imagine uh, in any effective democratic economic planning at simply a small local level. So one needs to find the space uh, within which to do this. And that's going to involve, of course, transforming state institutions. Um, people assume it's a lot easier to transform local government institutions, administrative institutions, uh, than state uh, or provincial or national ones. I'm not always convinced that that's true. The real estate industry has their claws uh, in local institutions, and they're embedded in the administrative apparatus of them uh, in a way that is not all that easy to change either. I'm not pretending that institutions at the other levels of the state are easy to change. But one shouldn't merely assume uh, that, that local ones are all that easy to change, especially when— oh, That's the when, truth. That's the yeah. truth, yeah. You,
1: you yeah. Put, well, you, you could put, a, you could put a, a fairly radical mayor in office or a couple uh, city aldermen or town council people or city council people or whatever, but, but the powers that be, the, 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 the real uh, owning class, the property class, uh, they, they, they remain fairly intact— you see this in it throughout the late 60s and and throughout the 1970s in uh, large swaths of, of, of the south I talk about this on my show quite a bit with the election of, of fairly radical mayors in a lot of countries or sorry uh, cities throughout the country and yet uh, these mayors ended up seeing overseeing the neoliberal turn in those mm-hmm. cities in in large yeah. part and so I, I I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm happy to see yeah. a return to, to, to socialism at the local level. There are a lot of examples of this across the country that my listeners will be familiar with. But I'm also I sort of have a knot in my stomach, you know, when yeah. I look at these things yeah. because of the points that you.
2: Well, just you know, as you say in your country, I think that the most promising development that unfortunately hasn't moved as quickly as I would have liked it to uh, was the left roots at, uh, attempt. Uh, of the workers' action centers to link up amongst themselves. They all had a base in their particular cities, whether it be the Bay Area, as with Power, where Steve Williams is located, or the workers' action center in Miami. But they were linking up with workers' action centers in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York. And they all realized that they were constrained by the limitations of the locale, They were also constrained by being reliant on foundation funding, but they were constrained by the limits of locale. And they ambitiously were trying to develop their base in each of their cities uh, to be socialists. Uh, That involved often beginning with uh, really the literal ABCs of what is the meaning of the word socialism. Um, but attempting to construct a national organization. And that would be effective because it isn't just a bunch of university professors like me spouting socialism, but these were people who had a real base in the cities in which they were working. Um, this has moved far too slowly, um, but it is what is going to be needed.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. I'm, I'm I'm not very optimistic about the political moment in terms of what I see as kind of like a localist, uh, horizontalist, um, vaguely anarchist ethos zeitgeist if you will that is really prevalent on the left right now um you know i we can we can talk about that until we're blue in the face i'm not really sure how we're going to turn that around maybe podcasts like this one we talk, talk uh, episodes with you
2: <laughs> but uh well i uh, you know i i hope that uh, the corbin development the development of momentum in particular uh is an indication that people who were primarily oriented to protest um, which is, I think, you know, where you get this anarchist sensibility. And look, I can understand where it came from, given the failure of the social, socialist, social democratic, and communist, let alone the American Democratic parties, oh, yeah. in the 20th century. Oh yeah, uh, it's totally understandable. So when the explosions, you know, began with Seattle and moved on to Quebec City and Genoa, etc. Um, of anti-globalization, cap- anti-capitalist protests developed, one could understand it. And one had to admire, even to some extent, uh, given the failures of the Obama campaign, you know, the, the Obama Democrats once they got into government, you know, one had to admire what was happening uh, with Occupy. That said, you know the, you can protest till the cows come home, until hell freezes over, and you won't change the world. <laughs> right, right. And you know the the young the young Labour Party branch, which has been nurtured by momentum, has grown uh, by by I think something under twenty thousand to now a hundred and ten thousand members. There are 110,000 members of the Labour Party uh, who are in the party youth. Uh, this wow, is an wow. astonishing development among young people. Many of them would have been the protesters. Um, many of them were the protesters, many of perhaps, them were the student
1: the pro- union protests uh, from
2: several years ago. Of course, well, U- U- UK uncut, and... sitting in on yep. you know the high street shops, etc., turning them into hospitals. Creative stuff, but protest. And and uh, I think people have moved from protest to politics. That happened to some extent with Syriza, but then, of course, given uh, the uh, uh, social democratization of Syriza, given the constraints it faced, uh, they all too quickly threw up their hands and walked away from it. Uh, and I was angry with much of my friends on the international left for encouraging that. I think they should have stayed in in order to ensure that Syriza did not social democratize as a party. Uh, Because now they're in the wilderness. Uh, They are in the political wilderness again. And there isn't even that much protest. Um, But I do think we see positive developments. Uh, You know, I would have hoped uh, that the Sanders developments... Uh, that the enormous number of people, not nearly as many as in the Labour Party, joining uh, the Democratic Socialists inside the, de- the Democratic Party, um, would be oriented to getting beyond uh, this divide uh, between policy, social democratic policy, which doesn't change the state, doesn't develop people's capacities, between that on the one hand and you know, the capacity to protest, but not change anything on the other.
1: So let's talk a little bit about, let's get into the uh, details of that. So uh, Corbyn and the UK Labor Party recently had their conference. Uh, They unveiled the latest labor manifesto titled For the Many, Not the Few. In many respects, it's a brilliant platform it harkens back uh, to the glory days of the UK Labor Party and the, the post-war Attlee government, pushing uh, you know, reforms uh, that used to be uh, you know, victories of the Labor Party, I should say. The free university tuition, the reinvigoration of the National Health Service. Uh, they plan to build half a million homes for social rent, rebuilding the uh, council houses that were at, uh, at such an achievement of the post-war government, and uh, launching something called a Fair Deal at Work. They're going to raise the minimum wage to 10 pounds. They're going to make sure that pensioners are fully funded. They're going to uh, introduce massive public investment projects and public transportation. And then uh, they're, the most interesting, perhaps, is they're, they're, they're wagering control over the finance sector, uh, including lending and investment. So... Uh, Tell us a little bit about this manifesto. It really does harken back to that post-war Wilson government, and it it seems to be a real achievement for building uh, something that could potentially go beyond uh, social democracy. But what's going to be required inside the party in order to pull that off?
2: Gee, Adam, you are much more of a social democrat than I thought you were.
1: (laughs) I'm playing a part. I'm playing the role here. The
2: the, the, the (laughs) post-war labor government uh, uh, certainly introduced some uh very important reforms, the 1945 yep. Atlee government right. uh not least the NHS the national health service and and public housing as you pointed to sure um but but uh it it uh was full of of constraints and and deficiencies right, right. Um, uh, of a very serious kind the uh, education reforms uh, involved introducing grammar schools and working some working class kids access to a stream of public schooling that might get them into Oxford or Cambridge but left the vast majority of working class kids uh, completely unoriented to higher education right, at vocational all, training at more, all, more well, yeah, and, and it wasn't even a good vocational training mm-hmm. Um. Uh, In order to get the NHS, they had to, as as, uh, Nye Bevin said, the Minister of Health, they had to stuff the doctors' mouths with gold, Uh, and they did, (laughs) and left them with tremendous power inside the health system. Right, right. Uh, the nationalized industries uh, were not at all democratic, despite there being a very, very strong constituency inside the unions that wanted industrial democracy and and it was you know the technocrats and indeed many of the former managers who exclusively controlled the nationalized industries. when it came to the uh, government of 1964, the Wilson government. Uh, it was uh, really immediately caught up in uh, trying to uh, prove that it was fiscally and economically responsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And its main policy thrust was to get wage restraint from the unions um, uh, in order to hold on to an increasingly barren uh, Keynesianism, uh, in, in order to hold on to the British pound's uh, international status. Um, so, you know, these were all highly constrained and limited governments. Uh, right, right. There is in a land, especially about the 1945 government, that that is important in the Labour Party culture. The first majority uh, Labour government uh, in in the English speaking world. Uh, and almost, you know, the most powerful one almost anywhere in the advanced capitalist world. But, um, uh, and and the manifesto, of course, does bask in that. But it goes beyond it. There are are phrases in it, uh, which I hope will be built on, that insofar as they say they're going to take back uh, the crucial industries of transport, water, energy, uh, back into the public domain, uh, that they will do so in a form that is democratic, that is internally democratic, that that does not replicate uh, the top-down, highly bureaucratic form of uh, the previous nationalized industries, which people never felt was theirs. That was one of the reasons Thatcher could get away with it. People didn't feel it was theirs, um, and and you know if we're going to in fact learn something from. The suspicion of the state that young anarchists have, young protesters have, it precisely has to involve the transformation of the state, including whatever state productive uh, enterprises there are. So there's an opening to that in the manifesto, which I one of the reasons I think Corbyn goes beyond Atlee or Wilson, far beyond them. Is that it points in that direction? I'm not sure he's going to get a lot of enough support from the unions for this, hmm. uh, who are much more oriented, given the nature of collective bargaining, uh, to uh, the cut and dried bargaining with the employer, rather than taking responsibility for developing their members' capacities to run their own industries. Uh, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, there are other very good things in the manifesto. You pointed to a lot of them. The one you ended with is this proposal for a massively funded national investment bank supplemented by a bunch of regional investment banks, which would engage in massive infrastructure expenditure. Uh, and given you know how easy it is to borrow at low rates of interest, this is something that I and many others have been proposing for a long time uh, as a way to get out of austerity. Uh, Trump, Trump proposed this, of course, but he would have done it uh, through public-private pr- partnerships, through subsidies, through uh, throwing state resources at private developers and const- and construction companies uh, in order to do this kind of infrastructure thing. He's not even doing that, um, but uh, so yeah, that's very positive. That said, as John McDonnell, who is the finance spokesman for the Labour Party, he would be the equivalent of the Secretary of the Treasury, it's called the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, Mm -hmm. Uh, were there to be a Corbyn government. He has said, we're very aware uh, that there might be a capital strike in the face of this. We're very aware that the enormously powerful interests in the City of London, which is their Wall Street, uh, will oppose this tooth and nail. We're trying to talk to some of them about why it makes sense to do this in order to build up Britain's uh, industrial uh, capacities again. We'll have to see how far he gets. You know, my great fear is that unless you're able to take uh, finance, the institutions of finance, into the public domain and turn finance into a public utility the way electricity or water or transport rails should be, um, you're not going to be able to pull this off. Uh, and and uh, this is, you know, the big test that will they all have to face. Um, there's one other thing one needs to point to. They are inevitably, and any forward-looking socialist would, uh, pointing to new technology, uh, the cutting edge of technology, um technological innovation uh, as as being what uh, you know rather than going back to the coal mines uh, as, as being what they would be investing in. I can't remember who said it, but
1: somebody wrote that uh, Marx, the old man Karl Marx himself would have been really enthusiastic <laughs> about that aspect. I and mean, He was always very intrigued by That's new right. technological labor-saving innovations that could potentially be used to ease the the, the suffering yeah. of the laboring person.
2: Yeah. And you can find all kinds yeah. of quotations at Marx where he says that, where he imagines a working class made up of scientists and engineers. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, that said… I think that there may be a, they may be a little too starry-eyed about technology. Hmm. Uh, they may have bought too much the notion uh, that uh, technological change will displace all labor. Uh, they may be too enamored with the, the job-creating possibilities of uh, digital technologies. Uh, you know, I, I think one needs perhaps a little bit more sobriety um about that too i mean you know they talk you know their image i think is to take something like uber and turn it into a co-op and that would be in fact would be wonderful uh that said facing off with these most powerful uh corporations that now control the universe of cyberspace and all of the commodities that are being peddled through it uh that isn't going to be an easy task either So I'd love to talk more. Uh,
1: You've got to run. You have a time constraint. Thanks for laying all that out. I, I, just to be clear, I laid out the manifesto lines and the, the, the so-called triumphs of the Atlee government so that we could dismantle them one by one. So I'm not quite so much of a social dem-
2: <laughs> – There's nothing to be ashamed of. A lot of-
1: I'm not so much of a, a social Democrat that I can't be critical because really, I mean, I, there, there are a lot of shades here yeah. of, of what Atlee, uh, the post-war government, or right. that triumph. I mean, even Corbin, uh, the swing to Corbin there was the biggest uh, electoral swing since, uh, since, since Atlee.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And so the parallels there are, yeah. are really stark. No, no, and look, so and you have seems... you have
2: good you have good precedents, Adam. Uh, Ken Loach's <laughs> film, the Ken Loach's film on 1945, uh, presented it in much the same terms you presented it. So I, there you I, go. I, you know, I just, what's good enough for Ken is good yeah, enough for me. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I, I just think one should also. In a sense, see the promise of what's going on as going beyond that. Sure, sure. Right, right. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why I think it's, it's so interesting and, and, and exciting. It's about building the capacities more so than just pro-
1: proclaiming proclaiming it ideologically. Because too many people, here's here's. I think maybe I can end with this, and you, you give me your thoughts here to see if we've reached some kind of satisfactory conclusion. Too many people rail against social democracy, and particularly left social democracy, in purely ideological terms, where they just want to say it's not good enough, it's failed us. This and you know the sort of like vulgar things you, you see online and Twitter uh I think we need to rail against it in terms of an uh, immaterial sense and in building the capacities uh, that could potentially go beyond it once we have achieved it because here in the United States social democracy would, would be great for so many people it would lift so many out of suffering it would alleviate the debts and increase uh, you know the the life chances of, of so many millions of of of
2: Americans, uh, I'm and, not and sure so we're going to be on the same page, Adam. I've always hoped yeah, I've so. always hoped that Americans would blow past social democracy, that you that you would take you would take this democratic Republican, uh, often of course, uh, uh, narrow anti government tradition but you would take that democratic republican tradition mm. and blow past the orientation of social democracy to be statist not you know to tr- to think in terms of policies that don't involve changing the state apparatus that don't involve democratizing the state apparatus that think primarily in terms of introducing a set of reforms but not developing people's capacities so that people don't feel that those reforms are theirs to influence and change and modify. Social democracy is a very, very democratic centralist in the bad sense of that term affair. Many Mm -hmm. of the social democratic governments make the old communist parties look Republican uh, (laughs) uh, in, in the way they are run internally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, if you look carefully at social democracy, I think you want to do better than that. Hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I think you can in any case. The types of reforms that were achieved in the mid-20th century are no longer achievable in the kind of global capitalist world that we now exist in um you, you know unless we can have the types of controls on investment the types of controls on what's invested where it's invested how it's invested not just capital moving across borders but in terms of democratic ac- economic planning within uh states uh, uh you know we're not going to be able to even hold on to those reforms The failure of social democracy was that having developed those reforms, having won them, they didn't use them as springboards to go beyond them to taking on capital, to taking away its control over investment. Um, And and at the crucial turning point of uh, the breakdown of the Keynesian welfare state of the mid-60s, there were left social democrats, as you say, who were precisely arguing for that, Tony Benn in the British Labour Party, Meidner in the Swedish uh, Party, the young socialists in the German Party who were expelled and many of them became Greens in the 1970s, the Waffle in the NDP in Canada, who were saying, we're not going to be able to hold on to the reforms unless we now move to a strategy of the type of economic planning that would take investment decisions over the crucial things away from mm-hmm. the banks mm-hmm. and the massively large multinational corporations. And, and they were defeated in every social democratic party. They didn't want to go beyond the reforms any longer. They had come to terms with capitalism. And insofar as they were defeated, those radical proposals, what you saw was the whittling away of the welfare state. You know, Electrolux in Sweden was investing more capital in the Italian electrical goods industry by the late 1960s than it was reinvesting in Sweden. In those conditions, you know, even in Sweden, the welfare state began to wither, uh, let alone in other countries.
1: That's the wrong state uh, that, that we wanted to wither, right? Uh, we, we, we <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we wanted exactly. the capitalist state to wither, not the welfare state. Exactly. Well, I got to say, I, I agree with everything you just put forward. One of the parallels here in the United States is the way that these so-called pro- – well, sure, they're progressives, not so-called progressives. They are progressives. What they say is that we, we need to reinstitute Glass-Steagall, for example, yeah. and separate investment banking from uh, you know regular savings and lending. Uh, you know That's one of the starry-eyed dreams that some of these folks have – that are totally that you've written a lot about mm-hmm. uh you and sam gendon mm-hmm. and others have written a lot about uh that we're just simply not going to be able to see these reforms so insofar as uh, progressivism or social democracy represents that naive uh you know capitalist state blind uh, you know utopian mm-hmm. dreamer kind of mentality sure i, I reject that, I know uh, that. completely I, know that. I think the problem for me is Give, give me a word or a phrase. How do you articulate your, your, your political viewpoint? And we'll, we'll, we'll end on that. I think
2: we should. I am very happy with the word socialist. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, I think one fills it out with this notion of democratic economic planning. One fills it out with the notion of taking uh, the key sectors above all finance into the public domain and making them public utilities. I'm not so happy with the word nationalization. Um, uh, because it doesn't imply uh, it being a public utility, it doesn't imply democratization, etc. Uh, so, but I'm quite happy with the word socialism. I think uh, we need yeah. to fill it out again.
1: Let's keep that and and fill it in with all of the awareness that we have of global capitalism and the structure of power and the state and all the rest of it. So, Leo, thank you so much for coming on the show and challenging me. I learned so much uh, from you, as always. And uh, let's do this again soon.
2: Always happy to talk with you, Adam. Keep up the good work.
1: Here it comes, people. Wait for it. (laughs) oh man you didn't really think that I was going to let an entire episode about Jeremy Corbyn and the labor party go by without a little seven nation army oh Jeremy Corbyn chant did you yeah I had to scratch that itch for you guys so Hope you all enjoyed the episode. I learned a lot from my conversation with Leo, as I always do. The man is a legend. He's not afraid to tell you when he thinks you're wrong, folks. And he had some troubles with my articulation of what I mean by left social democracy. I don't know. I'm tempted to say let bygones be bygones, but he's Leo freaking Panitch. It's hard to argue with the guy because he's forgotten more about socialist history than most of us will ever know. Even still, I think there's certainly something to say, and he would agree with this, there's something to say about the groundswell of popularity around an old gray man like Jeremy Corbyn. You've got got tens of thousands of kids, millennials, chanting his name at Glastonbury this past year. This is a big phenomenon, folks, and we should be prepared for it, we should support it, however... On the left, we need to understand how social democracy failed last time so that we can try to go beyond it this time. Even though sometimes the odds feel like they're stacked up against us. So next week, we're going to continue the labor and the capitalist state theme. Joining me is friend and uh, also a student of Leo Panich, I should say. Steve Marr is joining us. He's going to talk about corporations and the state. Corporations are often talked about on left dis- in left discourse. We talk about getting money out of politics. We talk about how corporations sort of own the state and run society. Steve's going to set the record straight on that. Corporations certainly have a great deal of power in the capitalist state, but we got to understand how that works and how that shifts across time. Uh, the Googles and the GEs of the world uh, have, have really changed the political terrain in a big way. We need to understand how that functions so that we can operate on that terrain to win because it's all about winning people head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits if you're a patron of the show already a member of the dead Pundit society here in a day or two i'm going to be posting my b-side with leo panich we're going to talk about what it means to be a socialist intellectual and we're going to really dig into his brain and, and, and talk about his past in a really fascinating way so you're not going to want to miss that check me out on twitter at dead pundits find me on facebook you know what to do folks until next week We'll be continuing our Labor in the Capitalist State series. So if you haven't done it already, buy your paper, your, your pens, your, your pencils, your trapper keepers, and your book bags. And we'll see you then. Dead Pundit, out.
0: Oh, this you crazy mother...